Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Movies and a Meal, a podcast where we talk about movies and other things while we eat. I'm your co-host, Ben, and as always, I'm joined by Keith hey. and Brad. What's up? Three movies to talk about, three movies that I think are, you know, widely talked about or anticipated. We have Boy and the Heron, which is the latest from uh, Miyazaki, and then Wonka, the prequel to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. This one is starring Timothy Chalamet. And then we're going to close out with May, December, the latest movie from Todd Haynes, starring Julianne Moore, Natalie Portman, and Charles Melton. But let's start with a Miyazaki movie first, and for that, let me kick it over to Brad for the summary. So, Brad? All right, a summary is always courtesy of IMDb. A young boy named Mahito, yearning for his mother, ventures into a world shared by the living and dead. Their death comes to an end, and life finds a new beginning. Yes, this is the latest movie from the true Japanese animation master, Hayao Miyazaki. And the boy in the heron has been sitting at the top of my musty list for what seems like at least two years. So I went to the first screen I can make, of course, sub, not dub. And for the most part, it doesn't disappoint. This, the first movie the master has directed in 10 years and only a second in the last 15, is The Heavy Affair, dealing with themes of grief and loss, as it also delivers, I'm pretty sure, Miyazaki's young lead, first young lead hero, rather than heroine, in a feature film. So what is The Boy in the Heron all about? This at least semi-autobiographical movie tells the story of 12-year-old Mahito Maki, whose mother dies in a hospital fire in Tokyo, sending him to the countryside with a distant father named Shoichi, and a new pregnant mother named Natsuko, the sister of his late mother. The countryside offers some of the most beautiful animation Miyazaki has made through the years, evoking the whimsy of My Neighbor Totoro, but this is a much darker and occasionally too ponderous tale. Mihito is of course a volatile mix of grief and anger, dreaming of the mother he couldn't save from the flames, and even wounding himself with a rock in a moment of startling self-harm you certainly wouldn't see in Miyazaki's early movies, more squarely aimed at children. From there, The Boy and the Heron works best as the mix of a child's heroic saga and perhaps the master Miyazaki's wistful goodbye both at once. As Mihito ventures into a world shared by the living and the dead, without spoiling too much, he encounters a colorful collection of some of the creations that spring from the mind of Miyazaki, who also wrote this one. As Mihito earns, for me, the crucial lesson at the heart of this, that the beauty of the world also comes with pain. The titular Heron starts to tease Mihito about his mother, telling him that his presence is requested. The first hour of this plays out as a pretty standard coming-of-age drama, but that's when the boy in the heron drives full-on into fantasy mode, as Mihito enters his own wonderland. It is indeed a world full of wonders, from swarming pelicans to menacing parakeets and adorable creatures called the Warawara. It's also a world that can be pretty confusing in the last 90 minutes, but the emotion at its core rings true, as this movie just delightfully gets weirder and weirder to its finish. The first hour of this can indeed be a bit slow, and even as he piles on the wonders for the big finish, it can feel that Miyazaki, and it thoroughly pains me to say this, is kind of painting by numbers. But those are only quibbles for a movie that mostly manages to stun viewers like his best works. It helps here to know some of Miyazaki's own story, which has influenced all of his movies, but most overtly here. His father helped build fighter planes during the war, and like with Mihito in The Boy and the Heron, his family evacuated to, the evacuated to the countryside during the war, and his influential mother died when Miyazaki was only a young teenager. All of these elements mixed in this alternate anime universe make The Boy and the Heron soar at its very best moments. Without spoiling too much, Mahito is given the chance to rule the fantasy world and upholds here, but instead chooses the beauty and pain of the real one. That combo makes this, if not one of the very best Miyazaki movies, proof that even when the master is middling a bit, he can still deliver a first-rate animated fare that stands tall above almost all the rest of what we've seen this year and in many others for animated movies. This is in fact a banner time for Japanese movies and theaters, with The Boy and the Heron and the even better Godzilla Minus One both out now. And I always urge people to see Ghibli movies in sub, not dub, but if you like the latter, 
The Boy of the Heron has a stacked list of actors to do the dubbing, including Christian Bale, Dave Bautista, Gemma Chan, Robert Pattinson, and Florence Pugh. As for my viewing of The Boy and the Heron, Lola and audience fell into a revered silence as the Ghibli logo first appeared, and long we were wrapped throughout. For that, I will give what may indeed be Master Miyazaki's last movie, a loving three and a half stars. Critics and audience, Keith, what you thinking? Oh, see, I didn't look at this at all, but I mean, this is Miyazaki. After all, I will go 95 from the critics. Um, you know, if you're going to see this, you're going to... You're gonna, you love Miyazaki, but like I said, the, the second half is really a bit muddled. I will go 80%. All right. Critics, 96%, 190 reviews. Audience, 90%, 500 plus reviews. Critics consensus, courtesy of Rotten Tomatoes. Soulfully exploring thought-provoking themes through a beautifully animated lens, The Boy and the Heron is another Miyazaki masterpiece. And the audience says, boasting incredible animation and a satisfying story, the Boy and the Heron delivers more of the excellence that Hayao Miyazaki is a Hayao okay Hayao, Hayao Miyazaki <laughs> has trained audiences to expect. We have a lot to go through, so why don't we just move on to the next movie, another Keith movie, and again this is the uh, movie Wonka, which is the prequel to Willy Wonka the Chocolate Factory, where Timothy Chalamet plays the title character. Brad, once again, I'll kick it to you for the summary. All right, summary is always courtesy of IMDb. With dreams of opening a shop in a, in a city renowned for its chocolate, a young and poor Willy Wonka discovers that the industry is run by car, a cartel of greedy chocolatiers. <laughs> I didn't really read any full reviews for Wonka, but I did look at the fans' reaction on Twitter, and no surprise, I'm in the minority here, as I know people have really gushed about what director Paul Kane created for this latest iteration of Wonka. I'm far from the target audience for this family film, but a devoted Raw Doll and Willy Wonka fan. The movie still left me pretty entirely bored for the first hour or so, and didn't even really pick up for me until Hugh Grant shows up as the lone Oompa Loompa, here to give this any of the edge I'd like to see in the best doll movies and books. In short, this Wonka definitely could have used a little salt with its sweetness. But first, a little bit about what this prequel take on Wonka is all about. This time out, in case you missed the memo, Wonka is played by Timothy Chalamet, which guarantees two things. Wonka will have charm, and this will be a box office winner. Brad will reveal the latter later, but the charm here is in full supply. Only the spark is missing. As the movie opens, we see our hero atop the mast of a ship arriving to a port city that's never specified, crewing the opening number in, the mu in this musical take on Wonka. And as these guys know, I certainly love musicals and wanted to with this one, but none of the songs here are particularly memorable in this cloyingly sweet flick. A little background on Paul King is another reason why I was so excited for this one. Anyone who knows me knows I'm fully in the cult of Paddington 2, a movie I watch at least twice every year. And that was, of course, he directed that one, of course. I'm sure this one will have that same appeal for many families, but for me, the jokes and genuine charm that make Paddington 2 such a beloved movie were just missing here. There are still some things to share about with this Wonka, for sure. As we see Willie make his rise, taking on the powerful triumvirate of chocolate makers that run the trade in this mystery town, it's the actors who are on the fun who shine the brightest. Patterson Joseph, always one of my favorites, hands it up as Chocolate Titan Slugworth. Olivia Coleman and Tom Davis as two conniving drifters who take Willie in, only to of course con him, or a pure delight of overacting that just works. Hugh Grant, who of course handed up himself as a big bad in Paddington 2, gives his movie an instant spark just about halfway through. But the real star is Kala Lane as Noodle, street urchin who becomes Willie's sidekick. She gives this movie all the genuine hope that drives some of his best moments, and she's a real treasure. So what's the problem here? For me, it's all about Wonka himself and the ceaselessly and cloyingly sweet script. Granted, Chalamet was never going to reach the pure demented delight of Gene Wilder's Wonka in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, another movie I watch once each year. But he thankfully also isn't nearly as depraved as Johnny Depp in Tim Burton's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, who lorded over that creaky mess as a kind of Marilyn Manson wannabe. 
Well, stuck right in the middle, Chalamet's Wonka from King and Coed or Simon Farnaby just lacks any kind of edge, making the first hour of this movie a pretty thorough bore. Once Grant's Oompa Loompa shows up, this does have some of the devilish wit and antics that drive the best doll interpretations, but it wasn't enough to save this one for me. The best of all doll movies to me are Fantastic Mr. Fox from Wes Anderson, and this year's other doll flick, the delightful Netflix musical take on Matilda. Those were far better than this one, but don't take the word of this increasingly grumpy old man if you're looking for a fun family flick. Many families are clearly enjoying this one, which has left me at least half disappointed, and the end clearly sets up for a fun sequel. As a devoted Wonka fan, I'll be watching for something more filling next time out. This time, I'll give Wonka two and a half stars. Rotten Tomatoes, critics and audience. Uh, Keith, what's your thoughts on this one? Critics, I think, are probably with me, but I'll go a little better. I'll go 75. Mm -hmm. And the fans, you know, there's a lot of Chalamet standing out there. And like I said, this is also, just because it bored me, this is a... This is a family flick that has some fun to it. I will go 90%. Well, you're spot on on the audience. 90%, 250-plus reviews. Critics, 84%, 231 reviews. And the critics' consensus, courtesy of Rotten Tomatoes, with director Paul King at the helm and some solid new songs at the ready, the warmly old-fashioned Wonka puts a suitably sweet spin on the classic character while still leaving some room for the source material's darker undertones. See, that's the problem. There, except for the, the second half, which had a little bit of that, it really lacked too much of that for me. But, gotcha. Well, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, Brad, but since our next movie, May, December, is basically a streaming movie, um, it might be a good time to just talk about the box office. I was office. thinking that. So, uh, so the weekend box office numbers, and I've kind of spoiled this already for the guys, but Wonka is number one this week, $39 million in its opening weekend. All the rest have been out for uh, at least two weeks. So number two is Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, uh, made $6.1 million this week. Five-week total of $114.5 million. Number three, Boy and a Heron. $5.1 million this week. Two-week total of $23.1 million. Uh, number four is the movie we discussed last week, Godzilla <laughs> Minus One. $4.8 million this week. Three-week total of $30 million. And rounding out the top five is Trolls Band Together. $4 million. Five-week total of $88.6 million. Okay, so let's close out with a third movie that made its debut on Netflix on December 1st. And again, that's that movie called May-December by Todd Haynes. That stars Julianne Moore, Charles Melton, and Natalie Portman. And for the third and final time of this episode, I'll give it to Brad to do the summary. <laughs> All right, summary as always, courtesy of IMDb. 20 years after their notorious tabloid romance gripped the nation, a married couple buckles under pressure when an actress arrived to do research for a film about their past. Okay. What's interesting in this movie, just because it seems to be getting a lot of award buzz, and I gotta say that it kind of lives up to that. You know, the story's basically and loosely based on um, Mary Kay Letourneau and Vili uh, Fulao, who, um, you know, were in the tabloids back in the 90s, basically, as a teacher who um, was caught dating, uh, you know, a 12-year-old uh, male student. And in this movie, it's kind of the same thing. Julianne Moore is the teacher who was caught having an affair with uh, Charles Melton's character when he was 12 years old. Uh, eventually, she went to jail, but then they stayed together. They have a, they have a couple kids. And Natalie Portman's character has come to Savannah, Georgia, where, they, where the couple lives to kind of get a better insight before she does the independent film about the whole story. And it's really centered on those three characters and their performances and... 
you know, they're, they're very good. They're very complex. There's no good people in this movie. They're not necessarily <laughs> any, you know, straight up evil people. They're just all very complex and shaded in their performances, each one of them. Um, I was kind of impressed more so with Charles Melton just because his body of work isn't as deep as Julianne Moore or Natalie Portman, both who've won Oscars already. You know, this is the guy who was, I think, the second Reggie in Riverdale on... Um, <laughs> The CW, and now he's um, just really turned out a great performance. Someone who's just like he's a bunch of different people. He's kind of emotionally stunted because uh, obviously his character was thrust into a just like very crazy situation as, as a young person, and he's forced to he was forced to grow up. Then he's also a dad who's because again they started so early. Who already has <laughs> one child in college and two that are just graduating, and but he hasn't really reconciled. Like he basically just went from 12 to 36 and like he skipped a lot of like just the normal maturation years that most of us go through and um, he really plays it well. Uh, Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman too are also just good as just like Julianne Moore has a lot going on and Natalie Portman too it's like she's an actress trying to understand her characters better but also you can tell like she doesn't always have it together and there's a part of her that's a little shady too. And I agree with you. You know, um, I I should probably read more about movies before going to see them. But even with the title May December, I had a feeling what this was about. But even if you don't know, you'll figure out five minutes out, and it's about Mary Kay Letourneau. Unless you've been living under a rock, you at least know a little bit of that story. But you know, don't let that scare you away. But this is, as Ben said, a very complicated movie because it treats it as a heavy melodrama, and there is uncomfortable humor throughout this. So be ready for that. And if you if you can't handle that, I can't say I can recommend this, but what you'll get if you can get past it is it is two actresses in, in top form, and they also they kind of challenge each other throughout, and that's really a joy to watch. You know, Todd Haynes has specialized in these kind of movies where everything on the surface seems to be okay, but underneath there's a lot more going on. The complex the complexity in um, Gracie, you know, Julianne Moore's character, is that for her, this is all normal, you know, and that's what challenges us. This world that we, we would find sorted is very normal to her. And in their relationship, it's kind of fun to watch because slowly, Nellie Portman's actress is kind of a predator because she wants to steal their story to revive her career. But without, I don't want to get, get in too much out front, but the way they kind of come together is done very well. It's not always subtle, but it's really, really fun to watch. And the fact that, like you're right, that Charles Melton shines through this at all is pretty amazing because the two of them... It's about the two of them, and when they're together on screen, it's it's pretty wonderful to watch. I was curious. I looked up Variety. They've got May December for uh, for two nominations: uh, Charles Melton for actor in a supporting role. This is her, this is like their Oscar prediction. Yeah, this is Oscar predictors predictions. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, Charles Melton up for uh, May December, and uh, original screenplay. Hats off also to uh, the cinematographer Christopher Blobelt, who's worked on a lot of things, but. He films this in Savannah as kind of this dream world, and having lived not in Savannah but down there, it is kind of a dream world of the rich. And you know, I, I love the way that you know Gracie is just kind of drifting through this, and you're you're allowed to make up your own decisions about Gracie. She's not at all complicated, but you know, Natalie Portman's gets the heavier character Elizabeth. It's a slow slide to where she becomes more and more, if not sinister, you're at least questioning her motives. There's one I won't spoil it because you need to see it, but. There's one really chilling monologue she delivers to the mirror. I think it's time to do the ratings. Um, I'm going to give it a three and a half. Keith? I will go 
three and a half also. You know, Carol is my favorite of this, this movies, of Todd Haynes' movies. He's made a lot of them. This might, though, be his most challenging. So I, I will give it three and a half stars for that. Okay. Brad, you got some Rotten Tomatoes? I do, uh, critics and audience. Uh, ben, why don't you go first on this one? Okay. So, given the award buzz, critics, I'm going to shoot high. I'll go 91. Audience, um, you know, it's a it's a movie that can make people feel uncomfortable. The, the performances are uncomfortable, can make you feel uncomfortable, and the story does too in some ways. So I'm going to go like 83. I'll go a little lower on the critics even because this is a complicated movie. I'll go 80. Fans, this is a tough sell. I mean, I know that you know Mally Portman and, and is a big star, but I will go 75%. All right, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, the critics, 91%, 253 reviews. <laughs> Audience, 70%, 1,000 plus reviews. Okay, so we're and, kind of half right, right? Yeah. And the consensus, critics' consensus, courtesy of Rotten Tomatoes, swaddling in its difficult fact-based story in a blanket of campy humor, May-December is a seductively discomforting watch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it, so... <laughs> Okay, all right, so to summarize, right, um, Keith, what'd you give? Three and a half stars for The Boy and the Heron. Two and a half for Wonka, mm -hmm. and then we both gave three and a half for May, December, so. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right, so let's wrap this episode up. So, Keith, why don't you do the plugs? You can find us at MoviesTheMealOG at gmail.com, MoviesTheMeal on Twitter, and do give us a listen on iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you can find your podcast. Okay, so for this episode of Movies the Meal, I'm Ben. And Keith, spread. Peace! Peace.